Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. Exclusive breaking news reaching us here. It's the World Cup. It starts on Thursday and I, for one, am thoroughly excited. On today's episode, we will delve into the biggest issues Russia 2018 can muster, including England's chances, how the favourites will fare, and who's going to embarrass themselves in front of a global audience of millions. We'll get a tactical insight into how the major teams will approach this tournament direct from the powerful analytical brain of JJ Bull, plus an attempt to rope in our old friend Data to help us answer the biggest question, who is going to win that lovely gold trophy? But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by Telegraph sport hero, it's Charlie Eccleshare. Charlie, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm, I'm so excited, I'm so excited I feel like I might burst into tears at any moment, <laughs> that is my current level of World Cup thrill. Uh, let's start off with England, Charlie, we've seen two warm-up games from Gareth Southgate's team, a good first half against Nigeria, not so good in the second, quite a pleasing night all in all at Ellen Road against Costa Rica, what can we glean from those games? Probably not a huge amount. They were good and competent performances, which I think in a way is part of this whole Southgate-England reality. You know, it's nothing too crazy and over the top, but it seems measured and controlled. And there's enough there to be excited, but obviously I don't think either of those wins are going to have the rest of the world sort of fearing in anticipation of playing us. Anyone particularly impress you? Did anyone like nail down a place or, or look a little bit vulnerable based on how they played in those games? I thought Loftus-Cheek was very good in the second game. It's probably come a little bit too late for him. I would suspect he probably won't start. But I think in a way, Southgate would do well to pick players who are just hitting that run of form and kind of ride that wave. I look at someone like Alexander-Arnold and think, he must be so full of confidence. He must be so buzzing. He's on such an upward trajectory. Play him and he'll, he'll probably give you a 7, 8 out of 10 performance. And if everyone does that, then we're in with a reasonable chance. There's three key men, as I see it, Charlie. Harry Kane is the first. He's your World Cup captain. 
how does he avoid another disappointing tournament like he had at Euro 2016? I think the big thing with Kane is how fit he is. I think it has been a bit concerning that since he came back from that injury, he's not looked quite as explosive. And obviously there was that whole weird thing about him claiming the goal. And I know that seemed to kind of dominate how we were talking about Kane for a while. So I think it is just a question of how fit he is. You hope that maybe... He was uh, holding something in reserve towards the end of the season. That's certainly the positive way of looking at it. The negative is that he's a bit out of form and it's hard to recapture that. But fingers crossed, we'll we'll look at the positives. Absolutely. And the others, sort of Sterling. Yep, I would say Sterling for sure. Obviously an amazing season for City for Sterling. He's definitely kind of fulfilled his potential at this stage. We were talking about him being this fantastic emerging star for so long and he looks every inch that now. Would you be motivated to play for your country, given the treatment he's had from certain sections of the media? I really hope that isn't a factor for him. I mean, it would be such a shame if that was, because I think it's such a small minority. I think the the vast majority just think it's really strange how he's been treated, as well as abhorrent. So I hope he can dismiss that. I think he'll know that there's a lot of goodwill to him. And actually... In a, in a strange sort of way, this sort of vile treatment has showed how much support he is because most people have come out in defence of him. The question is whether he can deliver for England anyway because he's not actually ever been that great for his country. Um, but he's got every chance. He's had a brilliant season and you just hope he's not too knackered from from playing a lot of games. Mm. Third key man, as I see it, for England, Delhi Alley. A, a little bit of a less impressive season for him. He was being tipped for a move to Real Madrid this time last year. That's cooled down a little bit now. Does he have the attributes to thrive in the international game? I think he does. I think Ali's a slightly weird player, though, because if he's not scoring, he's not doing a huge amount. And I know that sounds weird, but it's a bit of the sort of Freddie Jumberg factor. I was that, you know, these guys who score and it's like, oh, they're great. But I don't feel like when I ever watch Ali, he's really dominating a game that's not to say he can't succeed at international level because if he scored a few goals which he has the knack of doing then you know he could be a national hero but I I wouldn't put him as a banker you know I'd be I wouldn't be at all surprised if he put in a few anonymous displays and we were saying actually should Ali be starting likewise if he was to score I think that wouldn't come as much of a shock either Mm. who have I missed out Charlie who else do you think could be crucial to England's chances I think Kyle Walker is one of the few players who you'd say would be pushing for a team in a lot of the bigger teams, if you want to call them that. I think he's an outstanding player. There aren't many right-backs I think we'd want to swap him for. Makes it slightly strange that it looks like he's going to play at centre-back. Doesn't want to, seemingly, yeah. by what he said on uh, on Tuesday. Yeah, and I, and I think it's a way of getting Trippier in the team because Trippier's also really, really good. It does seem slightly odd to not play... I would say one of our very best players in his best position. I also really like John Stones. I think he's brilliant. I think he's the kind of player who most other countries would probably appreciate him a bit more than we do. I think we there's still a kind of lingering desire that we have for our centre backs to be kind of hard men and uh, you know get rid of it first and foremost. But I like the look of those two a lot. And Alexander Arnold, who I mentioned, I just think is so efficient. Seems never to really have a bad game. Let's move on to the group stage for England. First game is against Tunisia. They look very organised and defensively capable in their friendlies. They're only ranked to place below England in the admittedly slightly questionable world rankings. I think this looks a tougher game than a lot of people are predicting. Are we underestimating Tunisia? Very possibly. I think we have tended to assume that it will be a question of whether we come first or second in the group. Um, but I think we've made that mistake before. And, you know, given that we lost to Iceland 
in the Euros. We failed to beat Costa Rica. Or we failed to win a game at all at the last World Cup. Yeah, I think there's no room for complacency at all. You mentioned Tunisia being tough to break down. England have had a bit of a problem scoring goals over the last few games, certainly going back before the most recent two friendlies. So I think there's every chance it would be one of those horribly stodgy kind of Algeria 2010 draws. I hope I'm wrong um, and I hope England you know, eke out a win. But yeah, there's every chance it's not going to be hugely entertaining at any rate. Yeah, it looks like it could be a real uh, buzz harsher for our World <laughs> Cup, uh, as England love to do. It's Panama up next for England, who you'd expect to set up ultra defensively. We've seen better teams than England fail to break down teams like this at World Cups. Uh, how does Southgate ensure that that isn't also a deeply frustrating match? Well, I think the central midfield is probably key. I mean, that's one area where you do worry a bit for England if they go the conservative option and play a kind of Dyer-Henderson axis, which just feels like stodge central. You'd hope for that game, maybe Loftus-Cheek might get a chance, um, given that there'll be fewer defensive worries you would have thought. Or even Fabian Delph, I think, gives you a bit more of a zest, kind of can break uh, between the lines. I quite like Delph. I think he's a pretty effective, slightly underrated player. So I think it's the central midfield that would be the big area there where you just slightly shift the balance. Because I don't think he's going to go ultra-attacking um, in any game, probably. Is there something to be said for just surprising the opponents in games like that? Or, or does that not really change much for Panama, who will just sit deep? You would expect two banks of four uh, well behind the ball. Shouldn't Southgate just try and you know try something a bit wacky in that Yeah, game? that can work. I mean, Ferguson was the master of that. He was perfectly happy to go defensive at times, but he also would sometimes say, you know what, the best thing today is just absolutely overwhelm them. Mm. You know, let's get two wingers, hung the touchline, flood forward. There is that option. It's whether Southgate given how much there is to lose by doing that, it would be quite brave if we did that and got picked off and was sort of 2-0 down against Panama after half an hour. He might be thinking, mm, I probably could have won this game 1-2-0 or by just playing sensibly. So uh, it's whether he'd sort of be willing to take such a big risk. Panama tat, I'm calling that as the red top headline <laughs> right now. Uh, finally, for England in the group, it's Belgium. If England need a result in this game, do you think we might see the best of them? Well, hopefully, because Belgium would have already qualified. But... Yeah, it's difficult. Belgium are another one, like England. I feel because so many of their players are Premier League-based, they might be as knackered as England often are at major tournaments. I think that could really count against them. It's tough to know. I mean, England, you look at Iceland, and actually, once the pressure was really on, they completely froze. So... Different, a different sort of pressure, though, isn't it? The pressure of expectation to beat a smaller team versus having to raise your game a little bit. Yeah, true. Although often then what happens is England do raise their game, but they don't quite do it enough. You know, they, they play better than they have for a lot of the tournament, but still fall short. <laughs> it's tough to say. I think those two teams probably will go through. But that last game does depend to an extent on what Belgium have at stake, how much they really need to go for it. All I really want from this tournament as an England fan is just a moment of joy, whether it's a goal or a performance. I genuinely don't feel like that's happened since the Euro 2004. People might say Wales, but that to me was just very, very frustrating and I was just like vaguely relieved but very angry at the end of that match. Do you think this is the tournament where that changes? I really, really hope so. You're right. I mean, that kind of Rooney 2004 thing was amazing and that was only in a group game. You've got to go back to Michael Owen, Argentina 98, 20 years ago for a really invigorating moment. I, I throw Denmark 02 into that as well, although that was quite a boring game yeah, for a 3-0 it, it, victory. It, it, was a kind of, it was a satisfying win, but I don't think you have people talking about, oh, that Hesky goal against Denmark. Do you remember where you were? You know, uh, Not enough people talking about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think it, it would be great if it happened, but... We have such a bad pedigree at World Cups of winning knockout matches. You know, there's that stat 
since 66, we haven't beaten the World Cup winning nation in a knockout game. So you hope it changes and even a last 16 win of any sort would probably be exciting. But yeah, we'll have to see so many unknowns with this England team. I'd take like a 3-0 win against Panama, to be honest. Just just a, a game where it feels like England have actually done well. That, that yeah, that sort me. of clicking and it suggesting like, you know, we, we could do something here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll bite your hand off for that. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Let's move on to the big guns, Charlie. Germany, we'll start with. It's really hard to fault Germany when you look at the setup. The squad didn't even need Leroy Sane in the squad. Teams don't tend to retain this trophy, though. Are they the team to buck this trend? They could be. I mean, they, we're in the Real Madrid retaining the Champions League era, and that was always seen as just something that, for whatever reason, just didn't happen and then all of a sudden it did and Germany could be that team I mean it's a cliche but they are incredibly consistent you've got to go back to Euro 2004 for the last time they didn't reach a semi-final of a major tournament I mean that is really incredible yeah their squad looks one of the best it's balanced as you say you can't find room for Sane then that's saying a lot Tony Kroos is one of the best players in the world I would say you know he's good enough to carry any team I think they've got as good a chance of anyone. I'd expect to see them in the final, to be honest. And then I think they've got every chance of winning it. I shamefully said on this podcast a few weeks ago that a South American team had never won the World Cup in Europe. I was, of course, wrong. Brazil in 1958 in Sweden, as I was reminded on the internet. (laughs) Is that still a big factor in modern football? Should we be putting much stock in the idea that Brazil aren't going to do well because it's not on their home continent? I think that probably mattered more back in the days when fewer Brazilian players were playing in Europe. I think the fact that now, not only do most of them play Europe, quite a few of them play in Ukraine anyway, so it's not like this will be kind of really alien to them. I'd I'd be surprised if if that was the thing that stopped them from doing it. I think in recent years, that's probably a slightly more arbitrary distinction. Um, And they've won it outside of South America. Obviously, they won it in 2002 in Korea and Japan. So I don't think that would be a massive factor. They, again, look really hard to fault. I mean, you, you typically talk about them being weak defensively, but They've conceded, I think, five in their last 19 games or something. So they've got that. And then obviously you look at their front three and um, I'd probably expect them to get to the final as well. Absolutely terrifying. France as well, you'd put into that bracket as well. The squad list for them is is incredible. Why am I not convinced? Because I'm not convinced. (laughs) Just let me tell you. Um, (laughs) Well, I think the Euro 2016 factor is is probably big in your thinking. Uh, I think the fact they didn't win that tournament was really strange. It felt like a massive choke having seemingly done the hard work and then you're playing Portugal at home in a final. It seems crazy that they didn't win that game. And I you think. lose to a player who can't get in Swansea's team. Yeah, scores the winning game. Yeah, exactly. I think that coupled with Deschamps seemingly being quite negative and you question, is he the best man to get the most out of those attacking players? But actually, I think Deschamps ties into a wider trend of the fact that elite managers just aren't really at this World Cup. So... France may be able to get away with having him, who you wouldn't put in that kind of top bracket. Right, full disclosure, Charlie, I had a 10 English pound sterling bet on Spain to win the tournament on Wednesday morning. About 20 minutes later, I found out they'd sacked their manager. Absolute disaster. But on Spain, teams like them tend to peak for a period and dominate international football uh, and then fall away a little bit. That seemed to have happened in 2014. Have they put that behind them now? And how does this team compare to that one that won three international tournaments in a row? I think you look at the personnel and you think, 
again, where, where do you fold this squad? You know, they've got loads of really good players. I would just question whether they have the, maybe the personalities they did to win that kind of eight, uh, 10, 12 treble, you know, guys like Xavi, Casillas. Puyol. Puyol, yeah, at their absolute peak. And it was a kind of moment in time where it all came together perfectly. Talent-wise, technique-wise, it's a great squad. And, and you would say, certainly compared to 2012, where they didn't really have a striker, certainly not one who was particularly effective. Now they do, they've got Diego Costa. But yeah, I just feel there's something a little bit lacking. And I do think maybe the reason why you have those peaks and troughs is because it is quite hard to stay motivated in the same way. And yeah, so for some reason, and obviously the, this crazy manager change... Yeah. <laughs> sort of throws it up as well. So they're a bit of an unknown, actually, I would say. Yeah, unprecedented. Sacking Julian Lopetegui on the eve of the tournament, bringing in Fernando Hierro instead. Do you think that's going to make much of a difference? Or are these players good enough to, that they can cope without a, a manager who's, uh, who's just meeting the players, basically? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't... I've seen some people suggesting that, oh, well, that's Spain done as a contender. I certainly wouldn't say that. You know, I think we've seen... I can keep my bet. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Don't cash out. I don't think that will necessarily rule them out. Um, it, it just makes it completely unknown. We have no idea how they're going to react. They could completely implode or it could be a bonding thing, kind of like Calciopoli for Italy in 2006 and they went on to win it. Argentina and Portugal, two teams enormously reliant on one player each. Can that ever be enough in modern football? Well, Argentina are a weird one and they sort of play into this thought I've had for a while that international squads, you don't, build them in the same way you do with the club, obviously. And so you can end up having these crazily lopsided squads. And Argentina, you look at their squad, fairly flimsy defensive midfield, and then up front they've got Dybala, Higuain, Messi and Aguero, as well as Di Maria. And you think besides kind of Real Madrid, Galactico era, no right-thinking manager would ever build a squad like that. But that's what they have, and you don't choose that. And now they've sort of got to make the best of it. And it'll be really fun to see how they do that, because... How do you fit all of those guys in? And obviously a lot of it will fall to Messi. I just hope for him he doesn't fall into this role that he has done the last few World Cups of dropping really deep and kind of feeling like he has to do everything. You just hope, probably optimistically, that there is sort of a structure in place to get the best out of him without you know, getting him to do too much. Then Portugal, I mean, it worked for them at Euro 2016. And they're slightly different, actually, because they've got a really strong defence and then just not a huge amount else <laughs> going forward. And it's interesting because they're, they're a squad that in years gone by used to always be overloaded with really exciting attacking midfielders. You know, you had Figo, Rui Costa and those sort of players, but no striker. Now they've got Ronaldo plays that kind of deadly centre-forward role, but none of the sort of artistry behind them. They've become this very functional team. But I think they could have a run. You know, they've you don't win a major tournament without having some sort of steal something about you. And typically these tournaments are won by teams with the best defences. Yeah, very hard to beat Portugal. Yes. And the defensive record is, is uh, excellent as well. I'm also going to put Belgium in this group with the favourites. I don't think you can call them dark horses anymore with that squad. Uh, questions to which the answer is probably no. Can Roberto Martinez get the best out of these <laughs> players? Well, it's, so yeah, it's the recurring theme, isn't it? You're talking about an elite level squad with a manager who wasn't deemed good enough by Everton. Um I think Martinez did get a slightly hard time personally. I always quite liked him. and I think he played very enterprising football, which maybe was slightly irresponsible at times, but it was really fun to watch and it was entertaining. He was a bit different. Um, you wouldn't expect he is the guy necessarily to, to work out the formula because, again, you're dealing with a squad with a huge amount of attacking 
quality and it's about how to find a system that really works for that. It would be a shame if they didn't, if they didn't kind of have a run because I think we just haven't really seen anything from them at a major tournament. They're almost like England in that, in that respect. Yeah, no great memories yet of that Belgian team. Right, Charlie, are you ready for your quick fire round? We're going to rattle through the rest of these questions and cover the entirety of the rest of the World Cup. Who are your fashionable dark horse? Uruguay. Good shout. <laughs> going to be very exciting. Agree completely. <laughs> Which player are you looking forward to seeing most from one of the less heralded countries? I'm looking forward to seeing the only unattached player at this World Cup, and that is Tim Cahill. Oh. Tim Cahill, who is going to score at his fourth World Cup. How amazing is that? Out of contract at Millwall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Doesn't have a club. Doesn't really play, but... 52 years old. Yeah, get him to a World Cup and he will. He'll bang them in. Let's see him in Qatar, please. (laughs) Which teams are you least excited about at this World Cup? Who's just making up the numbers? I think Russia. I think as a host nation, that normally adds quite a lot of value, quite a lot of buzz. Think back to Japan and South Korea and they really added something to that tournament. Russia, it's just like, they don't have a very good team. And even if they were to do well... It's not exactly a fairy tale feel good story, and you know, like oh, Putin, he'll he'll be delighted with that. So uh, yeah, Russia can they can do one as far as I'm concerned. Switzerland for me, I absolutely hate Switzerland. Yeah, sorry, Switzerland. <laughs> Which player who won't be at the World Cup will you miss the most? Giorgio Chiellini, the Italy defender, just such a hero, and uh, he got bitten at the last World Cup, didn't he? So you know, shame he won't be there again. I'm going to miss the Italian national anthem most of all. I think. Finally, we were all pretty worried in the build-up about the fact the World Cup has been in Russia. That seems to have been overtaken a little bit now. It seems like we've sort of got over that collectively and we're just excited about the prospect of the World Cup. Do you expect it to mostly go off without a hitch from here? I think, yeah, I think it probably will. I think there's enough money and enough will from the Russian state to make sure that it looks to the outside world like a very slick, smooth operation. Whether the kind of methods that they take to get to that point are ones we'd approve of is another question. But I expect once it starts, what tends to happen is once the game start, we tend to be more concerned with kind of will our team sign that Honduras left back than uh, anything going off the pitch. And uh, I hope that's the case this time. Big future in international diplomacy for you, Charlie. <laughs> The Telegraph's World Cup stars. Hello, I'm Jamie Carragher and I'll be doing a sports column for The Telegraph at this World Cup. When it comes to England, I think the standout play before the tournament going into it will be Harry Kane. I don't see that changing coming out of the tournament. I think he's the one player who could arguably play for whoever wins. I see England going exactly where I think most of the country expect them to go, which is quarterfinals. The group is something that we should come out of, either first or second alongside Belgium. I think the toughest fixture could be Poland, which won't be easy, but I think we'd expect England to overcome that. The match I'm most looking forward to, I'd say there's possibly two. You can look at Portugal, European champions against Spain. But I think with the England hat on, it has to be the Belgium game. And not just from England's point of view. I think looking at Belgium, always seen as a dark horses in any international competition, but also because they've got so many players from the Premier League. And it's interesting to see Roberto Martinez, how he's going to set this team up. And if they do click, who can stop them? I think the headline on the 15th of July, World Cup final, will be about Brazil coming back and taking a World Cup. And could it be that Neymar is now the best player in the world and overtakes Ronaldo and Messi? Master tactician analyst JJ Bull is with us now. JJ, you've been writing tactical previews for the major countries ahead of this tournament. Let's start with the most major country of all. It is, of course, England. Gareth Southgate seems to have bucked the trend slightly for this tournament because he's been prioritising his system rather than trying to fit in the best 11 by any means necessary. Does choosing formation over players work and why? It has to. I think that's been the problem with England for many, many tournaments, isn't it? It's trying to fit the wrong players into the set positions. 
He's gone and fit a system entirely around what he's got. He's made a couple of little tweaks, like Kyle Walker being played at centre-back, which is kind of interesting. It makes sense. There's no natural left-wide player. There's no natural right-winger, really. And also, they're not very good in central midfield. So by making sure the ball's not really in the midfield, they're not going to lose that battle. They can build from the back in a certain way. It means they can get the ball into wide areas with those wing-backs and they can they can attack quickly and directly and England tend to be quite good at doing that and then you've got lots of central attacking players who are very good with the ball and running running with it so then that system he's built suits all their strengths. Do you think it's a bit of a waste of Walker him being on the right of the defensive three? <laughs> it's difficult isn't it because he's been so good in that role for, for Man City playing well, as a, a as wide a right. Back, yeah. yeah as a wide right and then he can tuck into the midfield as well but he can do it as a centre-back. The problem will be when they're against players who are hauking the ball into the box from one of the sides that he has to defend with his head. I mean, I'm sure he's fine in the air, but not as good as a proper centre-back would be. But I think it's not to do so much the defending, it's to do with being able to play with the ball. And he's very comfortable with the ball at his feet, can spot a pass, understands the positional play that they need, certainly with Guardiola's team, which Southgate's going to have but it'll really help England keep the ball. And that's what Southgate wants to do is keep it. A novel idea for English football. Germany <laughs> are many people's favourites, but shock, at least here in England, that uh, Leroy Sane didn't make the squad. Why don't they need him? The reason he was left behind, there's a, there's a couple of reasons. There's two players per position in each team, nearly 23 players. And Joachim Löw said that uh, Julian Brandt won that battle because he was really good in the, the Confeds Cup. And Sané missed that. He also hadn't really performed, Sané hasn't really performed for Germany. He's had 12 appearances he's made, one assist, and no goals. It's not the worst thing in the world, he's very young. The problem is that Confeds Cup, because Julian Brandt did so well with that, and obviously they see him play in Germany every single week. I don't know if you knew this, Sané had, had no surgery last summer because he, he couldn't breathe properly and so he missed that Confederations Cup. He did not just have the Robbie Fowler-style plaster over his nose. Maybe, or like a mask he could have worn, <laughs> something like that. But uh, that might have really harmed his chances in the World Cup. It's quite sad, really. I mean, he was so good to watch in the Premier League. But Brandt's a very good player as well. We just don't see him very much, you know, unless you watch Bundesliga all the time. It's not like they're weakened by not taking Sani. Astonishing strength in depth from Germany as a whole, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine, if you look at the squads, I was looking through them, Look at the England squad particularly compared to Germany. I think Germany's each player would get in ahead, apart from Kane maybe, would get in to that England squad. Yeah, it's a really frightening prospect. What about Belgium, JJ? They should be absolutely brilliant, but why can't they get it together on this stage? Well, there's something odd about Belgium. They have so many good attacking players and getting those balanced often means you have to leave decent ones out. What you've seen in the recent friendlies is that they're either just unbelievably good and you can't do anything about them or you shut up shop and then they can't be quite as effective and then they're weakened defensively the problem they've got is um, they've been playing this three in the back two central midfielders or sometimes it's three two wing backs and the strikers but they, they don't have a left wing back they don't have one the right back is Munier he's, he's pretty good the left back is playing Yannick Carrasco who is an attacking inside forward really on the left when Belgium are counter-attacked they've got a player who isn't so strong on that side to defend against and it's a position you have to learn through many, many years. You have, I mean, if you're learning a wing-back role is different to being a full-back. If you're an attacking wide player, it's totally different to try and learn it in such a short space of time, especially in a system the entire team is struggling with. And Kevin De Bruyne especially was really critical of the tactics they used in a friendly against Mexico. They said they were just totally outthought. They were left with basically three players against however many attacking them on the counter-attack. There's just huge spaces 
and they must have worked on it a lot. They've looked really good recently, and I, I do think they're going to be okay now going into World Cup. I was sceptical before, but they look a bit better than they were. Yeah, let's hope so. We definitely want to see those sorts of teams uh, rise to the occasion slightly. Moving on to Spain, they have strikers in their squad in Diego Costa and former Liverpool failure Iago Aspas. But after the disappointment in 2014, are they going to use a conventional number nine? They've got the option. I think having the nine is good for teams like Spain because it, it means they have a an option for a direct pass. So when they're playing lots of short build-up play and they get to the final third, sometimes it's very hard to then break down the team that are just set up to to, to stop that. And with someone like Diego Costa or Yaspas or, or Rodrigo as well, he's a very good striker, they can play off the shoulder of the last man. It means players like Iniesta or Isco or David Silva can just ping a ball forward that the defence might not expect. And it means that that defence then can't play such a, a high line because they're scared of pacing behind. But then if they don't play a striker, it means they've got they can play a withdrawn forward, like a false nine, the famous false nine made by uh, Messi under Guardiola. But they've got players, all those attack midfielders, they're all tens really, Isco, Silva, um, Thiago can sort of play that position, he's really an eight. Once that player drops away from the nine position, it leaves space for all the inside forwards to attack. So you can have, at any given time, maybe five players, seven players if the fullbacks get right up the pitch. It means they've got this space in front of the centre-backs all run into, and it's very hard to mark someone who isn't there. I think it was in Johan Cruyff's book I read a while ago, and he was saying that they just couldn't get work out a way to, to score against this one particular team. I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly which one it was. But Cruyff said, because they're always used to man-marking, if he just pulled away, suddenly they had no one to gauge where they were, and so everything they're based on, their vision, their you know muscle memory, is based on following the strikers, they know where to go. But without someone there, suddenly it's very difficult. I'm sure it's different now, if they're, they're wise to Spain being able to do it, but... That's where they get a lot of joy with those short one-two passes are in the box. Certainly a headache uh, and a big decision to make for whoever ends up managing Spain in this <laughs> tournament. We tend to think of Brazil as full of flair and excitement, you know, mucking about in an airport in 1998, but they've often been quite counter-attacking and efficient in the World Cup. Are you looking forward to seeing them play this time? I think they're going to be very fun to watch. They were absolutely superb in qualification. Their all-round squad is very strong and they have Neymar, who is you know, one of the top three players in the entire world. He's looked really good. And now they're not allowed to muck about in airports anymore. <laughs> Things have changed since then, Tom. They uh, they have to be more sensible on the pitch. But No oh, samba after <laughs> the passable control. That is the rule. When they play, there's a bit more direct. They're really dynamic. They've got players like Paulinho. Remember Paulinho at Spurs? It's no use. But when he plays for Brazil, they've got a good base with Casemiro. They've got wing-backs who are just so good at getting forward into wide areas. They've got Neymar, who's unbelievable. Firmino, all these players are just ready to do so much damage to whoever they're playing against. And I think they're rightly considered to be one of the favourites. And the thing I wonder about Brazil as well is we all saw that 7-1 dark day in uh, world football for Brazil, I should say. If you're German, you probably loved that. But I wonder whether that will uh, hang over them a little bit because it could do one of two things. Either they'll be just so fired up with the memory of that that they're going to go, ah, well, now is the time to avenge the evil ghost. Or it could it could just linger in the back of their minds. Yeah, you could definitely see them coming unstuck after what happened last time. What about Argentina? Can they perhaps be the team who bucks the trend of South American teams generally underperforming in Europe? They're not really very good. Oh, no. <laughs> Sampaoli, George Sampaoli, I should say, he's done a lot with them. He's tried a ridiculous number of things. He loves to do high pressing. He likes to... He says there's 29 different types of formations in football. That's it, 29. And he's tried most of them with Argentina. (laughs) There was one he was trying, was a 3 3 1 3. He's tried 3 3 3 1. All these different bits and pieces, 2 3 5s. Nothing seems to really work. There's little 
defensive discipline. They're really weak at the back. Nicolas Otamendi gets a lot of bad chat, but he's a very, very good defender. So he's there, and that's good. Their goalkeeper is Willie Caballero, who's been a reserve all season. The standout, clearly, is Lionel Messi, and he carried them there on his own. Now, the problem they've got is with, they've got amazing forwards, but you can't play them all at the same time without disrupting the balance. Then further back, they have players like Angel de Maria, who just has no real positional discipline, tactical discipline. And although he's a fantastic player with the ball, off the ball, he's not, and he's very hit or miss. You think you saw at the last World Cup, he was amazing in the last World Cup in some games. And when he's not there, he doesn't do enough for you. And so a lot of the talk has been that Sampaoli has basically given Messi not free reign to, to control what the team is, but it's certainly built around him. And if the rest of the supporting team aren't of the level that they needed to get there... They're just not going to do very well. And what we see here, especially in the UK, I think, is very Messi-centred coverage of it. And what we all that's all we see. And they are really not that good a team. There's much better South American teams in general, but Messi just makes them that much better. Finally, what about France? Loads of options for them in midfield. Paul Pogba not completely assured of his place. He's not been great for United for the tail end of last season. What role does he play in Didier Deschamps' team? Deschamps likes, he's done a 4 3 3 or 4 2 3 1 all the way through qualification. He's very cautious, but he really rates Pogba. I, I, mean, I think Pogba is a fantastic player. He tends to overplay at times in the middle of the pitch. What he does offer is a, he's fantastic with, especially on, the, on transitions. So when you're going from defence to attack, he is able to carry the ball or ping a pass and just create things out of nowhere. He's a superb player. Uh, Deschamps has said he reckons he's the, the greatest midfielder of his generation he would have played in the World Cup that Deschamps would have played in um, and at France he's not performed recently as well as he would have liked him to like he did at United I guess over the season and some France fans have suggested that he might be dropped but they have exceptional central midfielders who could replace him but they'll play a three I think for most of it because he's so cautious and it'll be N'Golo Kante probably Blaise Matuidi who's just a, a great all-rounder looks after things very well and that gives Pogba a bit of Licensed to create a lot like when he's playing for Juve, when he had the, the three that really helped him get to his best. But it's just not been quite right, Pogba, recently. Maybe he'll turn it on at the World Cup. Shackles release, perhaps. Who, who's going to win it all? I really think Portugal could do something special. Yeah, let's hope so. Fingers crossed for our favourite chiselled man. JJ, thank you very much. Cheers. The Telegraph's World Cup stars. Hello, I'm Alex Scott, and I am a Telegraph sports columnist for the World Cup. I am going with Harry Kane to be our main man because captain he'd lead that line score us some goals and set the standard for everyone else I'm saying England I would want them to get all the way obviously but looking at it I would say quarterfinals the match at the moment I'm most looking forward to is England v Belgium Belgium look like a great team with individual brilliance and I'm looking forward to our exciting England team testing themselves against them I'm not good at writing headlines, but it's going to have something with Germany winning that cup once again. Right, enough chitter-chatter. It's time to make some doomed predictions. Alastair Tweedale is with us now, fresh from an exhaustive project in which he attempted to answer the question, how do you predict the World Cup winner? Ali, we've got six main categories which are important in helping us forecast the winner of the tournament. You're going to rate each one for importance out of five based on your research. Let's start with form. How important to a team's chances is their record in qualifying for the World Cup? What's your rating out of five for that one? Only going to give this one a two uh-huh. um, because generally speaking, qualifying games are often meaningless. Look at England when they beat Malta 4-0. How much is that going to matter when they actually go to Russia? Not very much. 
champions, the World Cup champions often don't actually do very well in qualifying. Look at Brazil in 2002. They lost six of their 18 qualifiers. To be honest, qualifiers don't actually mean much. As long as you're there in the actual tournament, then forget about qualifying. A lot can change in the seven months between qualifying and the actual tournament. Maybe a better gauge of form is world rankings, which perhaps gives an indication of form over a longer period. And generally speaking, obviously higher ranked teams will do better. But the fact you're a world number one doesn't actually mean that much. World number ones often crash out in the group stage. Look at France in 2002 and Spain in 2014. I don't know if that's complacency or weight of expectation, but world number one ranking can actually weigh too heavy on teams. Plenty to consider there then. The next factor is history. Should we be giving much thought to what a team has done before at World Cups uh, in assessing what they're going to do at this one? Yes, absolutely. Teams don't win the World Cup Don't win tournaments for the first time at World Cups. The last time anyone did that was England in 1966. Since then, you've just got teams like Argentina and Brazil, really decorated teams, countries that win tournaments regularly. So at this tournament, I wouldn't expect a Belgium or someone like that to do it. What's your rating out of five for history? Four. Four. Important. Let's move on to players, how good the players are available for each country, how experienced they are and their transfer value. Surely this is the most important aspect of all. Absolutely, yes. Rating for this is five. If you look at winners in recent years, you've got players that teams have invested in from a young age. If you look at Italy in 2006, you've got players like Buffon, Totti, Nesta. In Spain in 2010, Puyol, Xavi, Ramos. Germany in 2006, Philipp Lahm, Schweinsteiger, Ozil. These are players that were invested in from a young age and have a lot of experience on the international stage. England's World Cup squad doesn't have that. You're not going to do anything with kids, as the saying goes. So you want your best players there and players that have got bags of experience are going to do better. So yeah, five out of five for this one. What about managers? Does it make much of a difference how many trophies a manager has won in their career or how experienced they are? It does make some difference. More and more over recent years, the World Cup winning manager has gone into the tournament with around 20 or more years experience in management behind them. But there are exceptions. Franz Beckenbauer in 1990s, the most obvious one who it was his first ever job and he went on and won the World Cup. So but maybe, I don't know, his decorated career maybe counted for something. So three out of five for this one. Three out of five managers, more bad news for England and Gareth Southgate. Two left to assess. The first is odds. Can we basically discount any team who's longer than about 20 to 1 for outright winner of the tournament? Yes, absolutely. For all the tournaments that I could find odds for, there's never been a winner with with odds of greater than 10 to 1. There's never been a team, something like Leicester winning the Premier League or even Greece winning the Euros in 2004. Generally speaking, the bookies know what they're doing and so teams longer than 10, uh, 10 or even slightly higher than that have got no chance whatsoever. So what are you giving that out of five for odds? Five out of five for odds. Five out of five. Important stuff indeed. God bless our bookmaker friends. Finally, random luck. Weird stuff tends to happen at World Cups. To what extent should we expect the unexpected in Russia? Things do creep up. Things do happen that you can't account for. Look at Brazil in 2014. You could say they might have won that tournament if Neymar hadn't got injured in the quarterfinal. England were helped by a dodgy linesman decision in 1966 when Jeff Hurst was given a goal that wasn't over the line. Please do Um, not speak ill of Jeff Hurst in the audio (laughs) recording facility. Apologies, apologies. But yeah, things things do happen and uh, we 
to be honest, all this research could count for nothing because we, who knows what's going to happen. Don't say um, that, Ali. I'm giving luck a three out of five. Right, three out of five for luck. Now, while we've been discussing this, our loyal producer, Abby Patterson, has been inputting your ratings to our World Cup forecaster. You can have a look yourself, podcast fans, at telegraph.co.uk forward slash WC forecaster. Abby, please tell me now what the forecaster has said. Who's going to take home the boringly named World Cup trophy? It's France. So France are going to win the World Cup. We can all go home now. It's sorted. Does that make sense to you, Ali, based on the research you've done? Do France seem like likely winners historically? Yes, in a word. I wouldn't be surprised if they do it. They've just got the players to do it and they've got the history behind them. So, yeah, why not? There we go. That URL, again, if you want to simulate the tournament yourself, telegraph.co.uk forward slash WC forecaster. And have a look at as well at Ali Tweedale's long read. Just Google Alistair Tweedale. You'll find it on his page. It's not hard. Ali, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. That's all from this week's Total Football. I'll be back with you next Monday alongside Jamie Carragher after England face Tunisia and win 6-0, possibly. Find me on Twitter in the meantime. It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. And tell me who you've predicted to win the World Cup with our forecasting machine. Don't forget to subscribe to Total Football via Apple Podcasts or wherever you found this podcast. Our theme tune is by Polvo. Go to mergerecords.com and listen to their back catalogue. Buy it too if you like. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers.